Brothers and sisters, if we could turn into our Bibles to a very interesting book, at least I found it very interesting in my own studies, and it was a blessing to me, as I hope it would be a blessing to you. We're going to consider the book of Nehemiah, not the entire book, but just the first six chapters, um, and it is a lengthy, lengthy chunk of the book, we're not going to sit here and read verse by verse, or else, since I am a slow reader, we'll probably take the entire, a lot of time just reading. So we're going to consider the first six uh, chapters. Uh, maybe we could just start by reading chapter one, in verse one. The word of God reads, "The words of Nehemiah the son of Hilkiah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu." In the twentieth year, I was in Shushan, the palace. And Hananiah, one of my brethren, came he and a certain man of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that, were, that had escaped, which uh, were left in captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are there, left of captivity, there in the providence, are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burnt with fire. And it came to pass when I heard the word when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said and said I beseech thee O Lord God of heaven the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I might pray before thee now, uh, day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and, thy, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. We have not kept thy commandments, nor thy statutes, nor thy judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou hadst commendest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet I will gather them from thence, and I will bring them unto a place that I have chosen to set my name there. Uh, now these are thy servants and thy people. Whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cup bearer. Let's look to the Lord for guidance. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful for thy word. As we read, it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, Father. We pray that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified this morning. We ask that you would give us uh, a wisdom to understand this, these uh, chapters in the book of Nehemiah. We ask that you would uh, uh, change our lives, that this, the very scripture would change and have an effect on our everyday walk and that we would glean a blessing from it. We ask these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. A few, uh, 
I want to say it was back in September. I think our brother Malcolm uh, spoke on, regarding the book of Ezra. Uh, and the, the reason I mentioned this, it's, it's good to um, get just a uh, short context of where we are in history. How did we get here? And we don't want to go too far back or else we'll spend all the, the time uh, uh, mentioning the travels and the path that the children of Israel took to get here. But if you remember that the, the children of Israel, they prospered greatly uh, and, and became a, a mighty power in the world. And then they started falling away. The kings gradually became worse and worse and worse until they had turned completely away from the commandments of the Lord. And the Lord uh, gave them up into captivity. Uh, and again, it was all by the hand of the Lord. And we end with the last king of Judah. Remember that the, the kingdom was split, the north and the south. The northern kingdom was taken captive to Assyria long before this. And then it came to be the southern kingdom. The last good kings came and went. And it was just now in a wicked, wicked state. And the last king that is recorded, is, is, uh, his name is uh, Zedekiah. And if you recall... Uh, reading the last few chapters of the book of Second Kings, it doesn't end well for the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. His, uh, his, basically, his sons are killed before his own eyes, and then his eyes are plucked out, he's put in fetters, and dragged away into captivity. Uh, that is a, a very, uh, the, the lowest state that the people of God had experienced through their ups and downs, through the wilderness, through the, the judges, as, as things would get good and things would get bad. But this gets to be to an all-time low. And then what happened is when these, the, these uh, people were carried into captivity, into Babylon, this is where we see uh, the accounts of Daniel come in. And we see uh, the prophet Jeremiah would, would go on to write and prophesize of, of the captivity for the length of time that the people of Israel would be captive before they could be allotted back into the land. And here we see Daniel picking up the scripture that was written by Jeremiah and fervently begin to pray. And I, I would hope that scripture does that to, to us, that we would see prophecy, that we would see promises of God that apply to us and that we would become fervent in our prayer and we we're going to see that prayer is one of the most important things concerning uh nehemiah so once the people were captive after x amount of time king cyrus by decree he says that the people are allowed to go back to the land the jewish people and, and, and cyrus himself would say that he was moved by the god by the almighty god and there would go a, a, a remnant of 50,000 Jews, was Zerubbabel, would be the first wave. And then we would see uh, characters like Haggai, Ezra, and, um, and um, Zechariah come in, come into place. And, and the people, as soon as they would get there, the first task would be to construct the temple. They would lay the foundation. 16 years would go by, and then there would set this apathy. The people would be uh, discouraged, and that's where... Uh, Ezra would come in, and Zechariah and Haggai, they would encourage the people uh, after 16 years that the foundation was the only thing that they got done. So then they were able to build up the temple in four years. That's a total of 20 years that went by with 50,000 of the remnant. It is uh, worthy to note that there's more than 50,000 Jews that were in captivity. And um, 
it, it, we could just gather that they were probably in, in a happy place. They were prosperous, as we see a lot of God's people were prosperous in foreign lands. Uh, our, our brother Brian was going through the book of Ezra, I mean uh, Esther last week, and Mordecai could be one of those characters. The people had already started going back to Jerusalem, but here was a man by the name of Mordecai that, was, that prospered well, in the kingdom of, of uh, um, Medo-Persia, and, and he didn't go back. And there was a certain amount of, of, of Jews that stayed. But the remnant that were there were disheartened, and, and the Lord would send these people, prophets, and, and people to stir up the people's heart to carry on the work of the Lord. And then after 60 years, the, the ministry of, of Ezra starting to come to end, he goes back, and he sees the people's state start to deteriorate again and to go back. And he has to stir them up again to get right, to start uh, doing the, the commandments of the Lord. Now, if, if you just add those 16 plus 4 plus 60, that's 80 years. And then after those 80 years, 13 years go by. And that's when we come into this scene, into Nehemiah, the ministry of Nehemiah concerning Jerusalem. Now, it's always good to give some sort of outline, um, and, and certainly there, there's many uh, different broken, uh, breakdowns of, of the book of Nehemiah, but as peer pressure always tends to give in here at Boulevard Bible Chapel, of giving uh, outlines or points with words beginning with the same letter, here's my feeble attempt from uh, just getting this, this pressure by... Uh, the other speakers. In chapter 1, we see that there was a poor state, a poor state or a poor report. The second half of chapter 1, we see prayer. Nehemiah prays, and he prays, and he prays, and we're going to examine his prayer. In chapter 3, and in chapter 2, we see that a path opens. Whenever you pray according to the will of God, in his will, he will open paths and a petition will be granted. In chapters 4 through 6, whenever, and this is true even nowadays, whenever you're carrying the work of the Lord, when you're doing right according to him, when you're carrying on uh, his message, when the church is growing, there's always going to be problems. That's when Satan, the enemy, will be at work and we're going to see problems. And problems will arise in different forms of oppression. And then in chapter 6, verse 15, the purpose is completed. And then there's just a few verses after uh, verse 15. We're going to see that you have to persist in the work of the Lord. Right? So we have prayer, paths open, uh, people that are willing, problems arise, purpose completed. Uh, and with that, let's just go into the specific portion of Scripture. We see that there is certain Jews that come and visit. And here Nehemiah, being a person that has never been in Jerusalem, he, you could see something about his character, that he's still concerned with the house of God. He's still concerned with the people of God. He's still concerned with the progress 
of God's people, of his will, his work, and his ministry. When people come, he doesn't ask them about so-and-so, family members, well-being, riches, anything like that. He asks about the state of the people. And when he gets a report in, in, uh, in, in chapter 1, he mourns. He goes into this great mourning, and he gets to a state where he is fasting, and, and he has to sit down, and he's afflicted. Now, there's a difference between genuine mourning and just feeling bad for yourself, right? When we were kids, when Malcolm used to be our Sunday school teacher, he would, he would always give an example of, mm-hmm, just eat worms and feel bad for yourself. This is not that type of mourning, but this is a genuine mourning expressing the very feeling, the very uh, a person of, the, the, uh, of God himself, how he would reflect his feelings towards his people. Uh, a prophet that always comes to mind when it, when it has to do with mourning is the prophet Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah was one of those characters that he, he could not hide his emotions. The Lord would tell him to go prophesy, say this to his people. And he would just start to weep for the people, for the transgressions that they were in, for the state that they were, for the pending judgment that was coming. And he would plead with them, look, look at this, 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 fire, this fire that's coming upon us to change. And he would help it just to weep. And he was referred to as the weeping prophet. And in a way here, Nehemiah is uh, showing the, the state of that God's feeling towards the people that he would be in mourning. And he would say that he would mourn for certain days. Um, in Matthew, we read in chapter 6, uh, it's a very familiar chapter, the Beatitudes. Does anybody remember what the... Uh, third verse says blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted now mourning again it's not feeling bad for yourself and sulking for, to get attention but it's it's a genuine thing to mourn god looks for the brokenhearted right it says that he came to heal the brokenhearted he looks for people in this state to, to help to mend to uplift to save right when people are to the, the very end, to the very extreme where they're at their wits, they have nowhere to turn their hope to. Isn't that where the gospel steps in? And you see the power of God saving individuals from, from the grips of the devil, uh, uh, just with all kinds of oppressions, all kinds of addictions, all kinds of problems that they've looked to in whatever ways to, to, to overcome these things. And nothing but Christ can satisfy, the hymn writer would tell us, right? And we see nowadays, even with, uh, with diff- different celebrities, there's been a- a quite a few that come to mind. Uh, 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 artists, musicians nowadays, there's two that committed suicide back to back. When they're in their depressed state, looking for something to satisfy them, and yet there's no satisfaction found outside of Christ. There's no salvation. There's nothing that could satisfy you, that could save you from, from the condition of sin, from this deadly state. And so this morning would lead to our first P, which would be prayer. And Nehemiah would sit there and pray. He would start praying with a heart uh, to, to the living God, to the true and living God. 
just as, as Daniel, upon reading the scroll of Jeremiah, he would start praying, he wouldn't stop praying, and the Lord would answer him. And here, let's, let's just take a look uh, at some detail in, into the prayer. Our brother Mike mentioned the prayer of Nehemiah in chapter 9. And this is a, a man that knows how to pray. It says in, in verse 5, uh, Great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He starts referring and addressing to whom he is speaking. Now, when I was a kid uh, and foolish, right, I, I used to think, man, these older men, it seems like they're praying and they're just uh, using fanciful words to refer to God. And, and, and it's, it's like they're starting to pray, addressing uh, this living God, which I, I was a believer back then. And it will take them a while to get to the point of the prayer of what they're trying to say. And in my foolishness, not completely understanding what that actually is. And it reminds me, when, when, when we were younger in the youth group, um, I was the youngest of three brothers, and we were trying to get a contingent here uh, in the church. We were, we were trying to get some of the deacons back then. I think Brother Malcolm was a deacon to help us and sponsor us to go to this thing called Night of Joy, where they had these Christian concerts. Some of them good, some of them bad. The problem with Christian contemporary music, it's hit or miss. I'm not saying that it's all bad. I'm not saying that it's all good. You have to be very careful. But when, when we were young, it's almost like we're trying to find music that identifies, that sounds like music of the world, trying to be cool. And now I've, I don't know, some of the younger men call me grumpy old man because I don't like any of that contemporary stuff. And I just tend to like the hymn books, the old stuff. And, and the, 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 when, when Malcolm would talk to my brother, he would say, no, I, I don't think it's, it's good to send this group of young believers to such and such concert, and he would give examples. One of the songs back then, it, it would have a line that would call Jesus Christ. Instead of calling him Jesus Christ, it would call him J.C. Like if he was a buddy, somebody that you refer to as a nickname, demeaning God to be like as a buddy-buddy, when it, that is just correct, completely incorrect. The way that we address the Lord Jesus Christ the way that we address God, what Nehemiah does is he's reminding himself of who he, what presence he's about to approach. The true and living God that could be terrible, that's powerful, that could, that ha, that could squash whatever enemy he pleases, that he could raise up and that he could bring down, and that he, he, that he observes that he uh, loves them that observe his commandments. He reminds them that he's a covenant-keeping God. Amen? He's a God that doesn't break his promises, unlike me and unlike you. He never fails. He always holds his end. We're the ones that fail. And he, he goes into the presence of God reminding himself of who he's speaking to, just like we do. In the Lord's Supper, we start supplicating before the Lord, before God, and, we, and we'll, we'll address him with such titles, reminding ourselves with what respect we need to approach him. Remember who in the presence you are when you're approaching that throne of grace. And then he goes on, the, the next uh, phase of his prayers, he goes on to confess sin. He goes on to confess sin for the people in a general sense. He goes on to confess sin in his father's house and goes to confess his personal sin. He brings, us, he brings them all together. He doesn't say, your people have sinned. No, we, 
we have sinned. We have failed. All together collectively, I have failed. My father's house have failed. And he goes on to confess sin. The next thing that he goes, he goes on to remind God in verse 8 of his promises. He goes on to, to God to re- remind them of his promises. If we do this, if we transgress, you're going to scatter us. This is the state that we're in, Lord. But, but if you turn to me, if you turn to me and keep my commandments, though the people are going to be scattered to outermost heaven, you're promising us, God, that you will gather us. And he's reminding. And it's not that God forgets the promises he makes. He's reminding him that we remember your promises, Lord. Fulfill them. Do we pray like that? Do we pray to the living God according to the promises that he has promised us? As we see in the, the, the New Testament, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Are we praying according to those promises? And then, is, and then he goes on, and his prayer now, he goes from uh, addressing God to confessing sin to reminding him of the promises, and then it goes on to be a specific prayer. And, and, and I think that's a good format to pray. When you have something that you, you, you want to pray, you don't necessarily, our gracious Lord, please fix my car. No, no. There, there's a progression that Nehemiah makes. And then when it gets to verses 10, 11, he gets to a specific point in his prayer of what he is desiring for the Lord to do. And ultimately, it comes to verse 11, which says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. He just throws this. Now, who is this man? Right? He's addressing the almighty God, the ruler of heaven and earth. And this mere man is who? He is the ruler of the known world in the person of Artaxerxes. And, and it brings things into context. When we hear, right? I, now, I, I tread lightly on this because I, I'm not heavily into politics and I know Christians could get into heated debates over candidates over elections we need to remember that they are just men they're just men they're tools uh, they're appointed yes we cast votes but ultimately the Lord is in control we need to address the true king we need to answer to him and if there's something that concerns this man we just need to realize that he is just a man. God placed him there over us. He could quickly remove him, and he placed him there for a reason, right? He raises and he lowers. He appoints and he removes. And Nehemiah is recognizing, even though this is the most powerful man in the planet Earth at the time, he realizes that he's just a man. But is this man that the Lord has to incline his ear for Nehemiah to be able to go do what he desires to do, for the, the work of God. And if you read this quickly, right? We don't use the, the words the month of Shilsu, Shislu and the month of Nisan because uh, we use the American calendar. But these are Jewish months. What happens is in the month of Nisan, when we started reading, it was in the month of Chislu. And 
I'm not saying that I have these things memorized, but there's a footnote in my Bible that goes from December to April. It's been a total of four months. This is the state that Nehemiah is in mourning and in prayer and in supplication. And here the Lord would answer. We, um, we learned last week how the emperor of Medo-Persia had to, be, had to speak in order to be, spoke to, to be able to speak back to him. I don't know if that was the case here, being the cupbearer of the king. Now imagine this, Nehemiah being the cupbearer to the king. It's an important high position in office. He's the one that had to bring the cup to the king. He pro- probably would sample his food and the wine to make sure that nobody's trying to poison the king. And the king himself would speak to him and bring this up. Why are you in mourning? And the king has great concern with the state of Nehemiah. If he sees him sick, he's going to get concerned. Is somebody trying to poison me? But he himself would realize that this is not a state of his health, that, that this is a state of, of sadness. And, and the king would address Nehemiah. This is where we come to our second P, the path is open. When we pray in accordance to the will of God, he answers. And he answers, uh, and he will not ignore, right? Here, Jer- uh, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, is, is, is been praying, and what he re- he's requesting of God, God will give him the means to do it. He himself is an old man. He's not a young man. He needs help. He needs help to accomplish his great task, and God would open doors. When we pray to God for certain things, if it's in accordance to his will, he will open doors. He will open and close doors. Regardless if you think if it's for a great ministry, if it's not his will, he will close the door. And over here, Nehemiah is getting a clear indication that he wants him to do this, and he opens the doors. Not only does he get the permission of the king, but Nehemiah, in a sense, he needs the resources of this earthly king to do the work. We need the resources of our king to do the Lord's work. That's true nowadays. We, in, our, in it of ourselves, have nothing. We are just a vessel, mere vessel, for the master's use. But it is God who does the work. We just have to be willing, align our, our, our will with the will of God. And here, Nehemiah gets resources from the king. He gets authorities of letters from the king. He gets wood, uh, all this granted from this earthly king that... It might seem like something that's just very something minor, that's not that important, but you have to consider the state of Judah in respect to the entire, uh, to the, the entire empire. In, in Ezra, we, we read that there's some, some conflicts with Judah, and, and the, the idea of Judah raising to, to power um, and, and Artaxerxes having to fight again another rebellion as the one that maybe Zedekiah put up against uh, Nebuchadnezzar, is a, it's a very high possibility. But the king himself, he's granting uh, Nehemiah, a Jewish person, to go rebuild the walls to make the, the city stronger, giving him authority to do so and giving him resources. This is not something that's just a mere ask, uh, not giving him, doing him a, a favor by lending him a, a set of keys to drive a car. This is a pretty big task. Not only that, he asked him how long is he going to go for. My Bible doesn't, Nehemiah doesn't record the amount of time that he is physically gone. We, we understand that he's gone for a total of 12 years. But nonetheless, the king grants him um, the request. And again, it's all, 
the work of God. He's moving his servant to ask for things. He's moving this king to grant resources for him to be able to accomplish this task. In verses 11 through 16, we see here that Nehemiah has a, a, a almost like a private inspection or assessment of the actual conditions. It's important, Christian, and this book has a lot of application to the Christian life. has a lot of application to the assembly of God. It's important for us to assess the conditions that we're in. It's important uh, as a congregation, especially for the elders, to assess the state of the assembly, how we are standing, how is every believer in their walk with the Lord. And it's important to be realistic. Not pessimistic. It's important to be realistic in the state that we are in. I mentioned that the the kingdom of Judah ended with the king being with his eyes plucked out in blindness. It's noted that one of the last judges in Samson, he ended in what? His eyes were plucked out blind. Right? Somewhat redeeming himself. What does it say about the church of Laodicea? Since we uh, mentioned, a a verse was quoted this morning from that very same chapter in in Revelation chapter 3. It will say, because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. Here is God assessing the, the churches in Asia Minor at the time. And this is what they think of themselves. Are they assessing themselves truthfully? I am rich. I am creased with goods. I have need of nothing. This is what Christ would say about them. Knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind. You're blind and naked. Blind and naked. That was the state of Jerusalem at the time. There was a remnant that was living there. And after the, the, the temple was rebuilt, the city's just in shambles. Maybe they got used to the rubble. They used, got used to burnt gates. And they would just become blind to this. And Nehemiah will go out there and assess Christian congregation of believers. We need to assess truthfully what the current condition is. And from there we need to ask God. We need to pray for help. For the work. As Nehemiah would see that the, great, that the, the work was great. It was almost a miracle needed to be done. Only God can resolve this issue. Nehemiah would realize, and isn't that so nowadays? Only God could save us through certain things, through certain circumstances in our lives. Only God can help uh, the individuals that are in just in need, in misery, that they need a Savior. The task was so great that it was only God that was able to complete this task. And Nehemiah would then go on and encourage the people. And you could say that there's 50,000 capable bodies of working to, to repair, make the repairs, but they were just sitting there. They were stagnant. For 13 years since Ezra left, Ezra is out of the scene, Nehemiah would come in there, and you could say that they were capable bodies, but they had nobody to move them. It's almost like they were an engine. I heard uh, a speaker illustrate this point as they were like a motor, but they had no spark plug. They had nobody to start them up. And here comes Nehemiah to be that spark plug. 
a good good thing to be when you have this thing that's just not moving, that's capable of working, to send Nehemiah to be that spark plug. And he would encourage the people, and they would agree to build. They would be encouraged. And we get to our third P, the people willing to do the work. Here's the people. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 3, seeing as we're already out of time, but I do want to mention a few verses uh, of individuals recorded eternally in God's word. The people here begin to do the work. And it would go on to say, it doesn't say that Nehemiah himself was working, building, moving bricks and stones, but he would be more of an oversight. But look at verse 1. It says, Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they built it. Now, when Nehemiah goes and he, he um, surveys, he, goes from, he lists from gate to gate. He starts from one end, goes to the next gate, goes to the next gate, goes to the next gate. It gets to a point where the rubble and the condition of the terrain is so bad that the animal, probably a donkey that he was riding, couldn't go, that he had to keep going by foot. And it will go on to the gates until you get to the very start, starting location. And when it goes to the account of the reconstruction, it goes from this gate they would build them to this gate. They would build them to this gate. And it will list the individuals, their families, their sons and daughters. We're going to see that they would construct. The reason I point out verse 1 is that Eliashub was the high priest. When you think of the high priest, you're thinking of the highest office among the Levites. You're thinking about the person that wears the, the garments of, 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 of glory that, that he will wear the stones and the mitre and the scepter. He would, he would have uh, this entire wardrobe attire to, to go before the Lord and intercede for the people. Here's the person highest in office among the Levites, yet he would build. It's recorded in Scripture that he will get out there and he would start moving stones. There is no position too high amongst the church of God to do a task. There is no egos, no room for egos amongst the church of God, amongst the building, the congregation. We shouldn't look down upon any certain positions. And they didn't let their, their point, position in office dictate whether they go out there and do hard labor. Look at verse 5. It says, uh, And next unto the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the Lord's to to the work of their Lord. Imagine this: these people felt like this work was below them because they were nobles. It's recorded in God's Scripture for all eternity. The apathy of believers is recorded. God remembers. God remembers life of the high priest bringing himself down to move rubble, and He remembers these nobles that they would not put their necks to work. Now, Christian, I, I point this just mere point out to you. If the highest person, the one whom God has highly exalted, and none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, would get on his knees and take water in a cloth and begin to wash his disciples' dirty feet, who are we to say that any task is too low for us. Who are we to say that that's, even though that's the Lord's will, that is somebody else's task? 
how dare you tell me to take out the garbage? How dare you ask me to get in the clean, monthly cleaning team? What kind of attitude would that be? Are you being a tokoi or are you being like the high priest who would just lower himself and do the work himself? Look at verse 8 where it says, Next unto him, Uziel, the son of Hamariah, of the goldsmiths. Now, jewelers have a very delicate craft that they form jewelry. And, and if you look, if you go into any, any jewelry store, when they're working with diamonds and jewelry, they have all kinds of lenses and all kinds of small little tweezers type of equipment to build. It's a delicate art. Do you think that they cared that this is not their craft? They're more for the finer type of work. No, they would get there and they would work. Look at verse 12 where it would say, Next unto him repair Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of half of Jerusalem. You think this guy might have an ego? No, he gets down to work. And guess what? He doesn't have any sons. So who would work with him? Are you hearing this, girls? Are you hearing this, sisters? He and his daughters. Daughters doing construction, heavy construction work. You think it's easy. When we were, um, when I was a young man, I, I served at Camp Horizon, as a lot of the young men did. And um, there was a certain individual by the name of Billy Skelton. He had the great idea to get young youths, 15, 16 year olds, to grab a pile of rubble of, of small rocks and spread it out and box it in to be a tra- like a parking spot for the, the trailers for the boats and for, um, you know, different type of equipment. And so we got out there, and it was just not the guys, it was the girls. And they gave us rakes. And you would think it's like a pile of leaves that you could just push with a rake and it would spread easy. You would hit it, and two rocks would roll. In the bright noon, the sun was above our heads. We were like scorched hot, pouring in sweat. And the girls were out there. I will say the majority of them complained. And back then, I would be like, this is not right. Like I, I would understand the males. Yes, go ahead and do the labor. But some of the girls, they hadn't even worked. Some of them de- ended up with blisters on the entire palm of their hands from the work. Some of them didn't complain. Some of them did. And it, just, it, it brought to mind this, this memory that I had of my, myself thinking it was unfair for the women to work. But this guy and his daughters, which this was actual work. This was building a wall, not just spreading a pile of rocks. Even though we complained, they didn't complain. And they're recorded forever here in Scripture of the work that they carried out. Him and his daughters. Another point um, that I want to make quickly since we're already over time is Nehemiah had a, a very smart tactic that he would basically put everybody to work between gate to gate, especially if it was in front or if their house was up against the wall, they would repair the wall. Now think about what this would do. When you open the door, the first thing you would see a wall, and this is your house, you live there, wouldn't you want that portion of the wall to be built correctly, impeccably? If the wall was to fall down, if there's a weak point in the wall and the enemy was to come in, if you had the weak spot on your wall, you would be the first to get attacked, right? And so these individuals would build 
the wall with all care and with diligence to bring it up to that, that it would be defensible for protection and that would be aesthetically pleasing. I'm sure that they did it correctly with great care. And so the wall was erected and the work of the Lord was being carried out. But seeing as we're out of time, I would just like to summarize a few things from the next three chapters. When the work of the Lord is moving forward, the enemy gets to work. When the Christian is stagnant, not doing anything, the devil doesn't have to do anything because you're not threatening his kingdom. There's, there's going to be no, no, no uh, oppression from him if you're not doing anything. The stagnant believer as the state of these people. Here we are, we're introduced to Sambalat, uh, and Tobiah. Uh, the, the, these were Samaritans. They were not part of the people. And they, why are they now uh, concerned and want to fight the people? Because the Lord's work is being carried out. And they would oppress the people in various ways. They would begin by mocking them, by uh, making fun of them, by jeering them. And it reminds me of whenever you're doing uh, outdoor preaching, air ministry, there's always the individuals that would poke fun. They start, start trying to discourage the people. Uh, yet Nehemiah and the people would not be discouraged. And Nehemiah would uh, answer by prayer. Then they would get angry when they would see the work actually proceeding. And then they would, they would uh, be wroth. It says that they would be planning on attacking, physically attacking them. But Nehemiah would, would have his people, because everybody dwelt amongst the same area. There was Jews that dwelt outside of Jerusalem. And, and it was told to Nehemiah of their plans. And they would ver- physically be shoveling with a shovel in one hand and have a sword in another hand to fight any opposition that might come. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah would set guards out um, because when he left, not only did he have resources, uh, Artaxerxes gave him a contingent of guards, and he would have them not only just doing the work, but he would have them ready to fight. There was also uh, the problem, we're we're in our problem chapters, uh, the problem of rubble. Right there was a great um, a, uh, burden that Judah, while they were working, there was just so much rubble and there was so much things that needed to be done that was starting to get in the way, and this would dishearten the people. And they would plead and they would say that we are tired. So they're not wrong in saying they're tired. The work is great, but their conclusion that they wanted to stop was the wrong one. And and again. They would have to, Nehemiah would have to step in and to uh, move the people to remind them that it's the Lord. There's no task too great for the Lord. Every task is too great for us. Um, when we get to chapter 5, there's, again, opera, uh, there's, there's some more opposition. Um, and this is conflict from within. We have to be careful with it, to have conflict from within the assembly. If you go to a lot of churches a lot of assemblies, a lot of the conflict is all internal with people holding grudges over the silliest things. You have families that are upset with once another over things that happened 20 years ago sometimes and things that are not even important. There's relationships, personal relationships that I have witnessed of of grudges being held from things that happened in childhood to the point where 
people get over it and apologize, and then they become the closest of friends over something, and, and they realize this is the silliest thing that we were at, end, at odds for all those years. There's internal conflict that arises of people in power uh, taking too much money, lending money, uh, charging their own brothers and sisters a great task, uh, having to enslave their uh, uh, sons and daughters because they don't have money to pay for this task. And Nehemiah steps in. And the way that he answers this, this problem um, is he himself commands them, asks what to do, and gives them an example. An example that he gives is found in, in chapter 5, verse 14, that he himself as a governor was entitled to certain taxes, certain things, and he himself would take none of them. As a matter of fact, he would take in X amount of people and feed them every day. He didn't have to do any of this. And the, the taxes and the, the wealth gained from the governors that were set before him, they gained great riches, but Nehemiah would have none of it, and he would lead by example. Brothers and sisters, we must lead by example. Sometimes it's better to lead by example than telling somebody what to do, especially in the assembly of God. Instead of doing what I say, it's easier to teach by actual doing. And I find that. I, don't, I think every par- young parent here could, could uh, confess to this. My kids learn my bad habits a lot quicker just by watching me. But I tell them to do something a hundred times and pound my fist and get upset. They don't learn that way. They see and they learn. We have to be careful what we're teaching them, right? And um, the last chapter before the wall is completed, there's uh, one more, well, there's a a couple more oppressions where they try to uh, ensnare uh, Nehemiah to come telling him stories, uh, making up lies that, that he's in rebellion of the king uh, Artaxerxes and that he himself wants to make himself a king. He doesn't even pay him any mind because he knows uh, where he's standing is with the emperor. But one of the last ones is, is this, this person asked Nehemiah, they're coming to kill you. Come hide out with me in the house of God and we will we will uh, congregate there. We'll discuss what plans. It seems something legitimate. We have to be, be careful. We have to be very careful in the assembly of God for false doctrine, especially the elders, as they're overseers, they're shepherds of the flock. We need to be on the lookout for this. As this seemingly seems something that's good, something that's to, to, for the safety of Nehemiah. Nehemiah himself was a Benjamite. And he knew the word of God. And he wasn't fooled by this. And, and, and I see this in the sense of, and it's a good testimony to have, when the enemy's trying to get to you, remember what they said to Daniel concerning him when they were trying to get him to uh, look bad in front of Darius. They're saying there's nothing except concerning the law of his God that we could make him sin against the king, right? If there's, if there's nothing in his life that, that we could, there's no blackmail material except concerning his God, right? And this is a testimony that, that here Nehemiah has. He, he sees this, calls it out for what it is. They're trying to get me to sin against my own God. That's the only way that this work is going to cease, is if I sin against my own God. And later he finds out that this was the whole plan of Tobiah the entire time. Um, and, and, and these... Uh, Obstacles are all overcome. 
And when we get to chapter, uh, verse 15, it says that the wall was finished in 52 days. Imagine that. It's been 93 years since the people have been back. This spark plug gets in there. We need spark plugs in our assembly today. We need spark plugs in the church to move the church, to make it grow, to make it spread the gospel. And here this man comes, and in 52 days, the work was complete. Now I'm going to be looking forward to the remaining portion of the book as it has great application. Our brother Mike's going to cover that portion uh, next week. The, the remaining four verses, there is an issue that stays there with one of these individuals, one of these uh, um, wolf and lambs clothing amongst the people there. And we're going to see that Nehemiah in, in chapter 13, he returns after 12 years and addresses this immediately. And we need to be persistent, right? This is the last P. We need to be persistent in the work of God. We cannot be stagnant. We cannot be as King David. After conquering, after fighting, he was just sitting in his, in his temple, looking out of his balcony, and he gets in trouble. We have to persist in the work of God. Let's close the meeting in a word of prayer. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful for this man, Nehemiah, as he would be one to hold a great position in office, have a great career, but yet his heart and his thoughts were in the work of God and in the people of God. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would have that same attitude, regardless of our secular employment, that we would be as him, that we would seek ye first the kingdom of God in what we do. We pray for the saints here this morning. We ask that you would bless them as we depart. We ask these things in your son's most precious name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.